Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got my panel, Charlotte Pickles, who's the director of the Reform Think Tank and former advisor to Ian Duncan-Smith the author and academic Frank Ferretti, and the political commentator Joe Phillips. Good evening to you three. Um, looking very nice and suntanned, by the way, my panel are today. I've got to say, I'm going to have to work on my own sunbathing, I think, in the heat wave we've got coming this weekend. Uh, you know the drill, don't you, as well, on Jubes & Co. It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? I've told you the topics that we'll be getting into, the Tories 2.0. Uh, what should they be focusing on? I also want to talk to you about live facial recognition. Is this something you care about? Do you get worried that, I don't know, CCTV, supermarkets, whoever it is, uh, that they might be live tracking you? And also, I want to talk to you about white shorts. Why? Because uh, Wimbledon, what we're saying now is that the women shouldn't have to wear them. White shorts on the time of the month. Stephen says, what a load of nonsense. Keep the white shorts. Stephen, my question to you. Uh, if you were bleeding out of, out of your backside, sorry to be so crude, would you want to wear white shorts? Get back in touch and you tell me what you think to that. Uh, also, by the way, I don't know about you, but I did let out a little bit of a chuckle there during those news headlines when I was listening to Keir Starmer um, talking about the principled situation of saying he would be gone uh, if he got a fixed penalty notice, knowing full well pretty much that the chances of getting a fixed penalty notice, even if he was found guilty, were pretty much zero because that wasn't the policy of that particular police force. Anyway, you know what? Let's move on from all of that. I'm sick and tired, quite frankly, uh, of talking about the ridiculous nonsense of um, kind of all of it. It's just we've been going around in circles, haven't we, with the whole Boris thing. And what I want to do tonight is look forward. So my first question to you is what should the Tories uh, look like going forward? Who should be the leader? You've seen Rishi. Have you seen his campaign video? We just mentioned it in the headlines there. Very slick uh, to say it's only been there for a couple of days. Uh, domain name uh, registered back in, I think it was December, albeit a slightly different worded one was used for the launch today. Uh, Rishi, uh, ready for Rishi, F-O-R, was the one that was registered a while ago. Uh, ready for Rishi, with a number four, was the one that was launched today. I'm always a little bit suspicious of things like that. Are you? Uh, anyway, you tell me your thoughts on it all. GBviews at gbnews.uk is my email address. You can tweet me if that's your thing, gbnews or at Michelle Jubes. So then, let's have it. Who do you reckon uh, should be the UK's 56th Prime Minister? 56. And more importantly, what policies do you want them to focus on? I was asking you a bit about this last night and my inbox was on fire. Lots of you uh, were talking. Net Zero was one that was coming through thick and fast. Uh, immigration, controlling the immigration, the war in Ukraine, housing. They were your thoughts last night. Now that you've slept on it, is there anything else you'd like to see from them? Uh, should we start, though, by having a little look uh, at who exactly is likely to be uh, putting their kind of name in the in the frame to be the next leader? I say, I say this kind of tentatively because I don't know if you've noticed, so many people are coming out saying, I'm definitely not going and then, come on, we know that they're going to put their name in the ring at some point, don't we? So let's have a little look, shall we, as to who is who. 
For a long time, Rishi Sunak seemed the likely favourite in any leadership contest after he pushed through billions of extra funding to protect jobs when the pandemic struck. But the former Chancellor's stock took a bit of a battering more recently, following the revelations that his wife had non-domicile status for tax purposes and he'd held onto his US green card while serving in the government. But he still remains pretty popular within the party. In recent months, the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, has clearly been positioning herself for a leadership run, appearing at times to channel her inner Margaret Thatcher with her high-profile interventions and photo opportunities. She has strong grassroots support within the party, and the war in Ukraine has certainly pushed up her public profile. It's done the same for the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, the former army officer has been widely praised for his deft handling of the UK's military response to the crisis, a key figure in providing support and training for Ukraine's armed forces. He's admired as a highly capable cabinet minister who has widespread support from all wings of the party. Although he's played down any interest in the top job, he's a definite contender. Suella Braverman became the first cabinet minister to publicly announce her intention to stand during a television interview on Wednesday night. She was appointed Boris Johnson's attorney general two years ago. She's positioning herself as an anti-woke candidate, but for now at least, she's not seen as one of the favourites. Tory rebel Steve Baker has pretty much confirmed he'll also be running for the top job, the Brexiteer who played a leading role in orchestrating the resignation of Theresa May, might struggle to win over many on the left wing of the party. But he told GB News he's getting lots of support from serious figures. And I'm doing that out of respect for Conservative home readers and the many people who I'm afraid to the, uh, the, the, the disappointment my critics are in fact lighting up my phone encouraging me to go for it. You know, people have watched me provide leadership for seven years, sometimes for up to a third of the Conservative Party, and successfully. Coming second to Boris Johnson in the last leadership election, Jeremy Hunt has been out of office for the past three years. But there's little doubt the former Foreign Secretary will seize the opportunity to throw his hat back into the ring. Although his strong support for tough lockdown measures during the pandemic won't sit well with some in the party. Well, less than two days after accepting the job as Chancellor and then robustly supporting Boris Johnson on the airwaves, Nadim Zahawi pretty much wielded the killer blow by very publicly demanding the Prime Minister's resignation. Little surprise to those in the party who say he's been quietly plotting a leadership bid for months. He's certainly seen as a safe pair of hands. Well, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is highly popular on the right of the party, where they support her tough line on the small boats crisis. But her plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda have run into inevitable legal obstacles. Her staunch support of Boris Johnson, while many others called on him to go, might also impact on her chances. The former health secretary, Sajid Javid, was the first to resign on Tuesday, sparking the final push to get rid of Boris Johnson. The former chancellor and home secretary, he certainly has the political pedigree for the top job. 
He may not have the charisma of some of the other candidates, but he's clearly trying to position himself as a man of integrity. Back in January, Tom Tugendhat, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, announced his intention to stand for leader should Boris Johnson be turfed out. A Remain supporter in 2016, the former soldier might struggle to cut through with many Brexiteers in the party, but he's greatly admired as a very capable and thoughtful politician. Insightful stuff there. So there you go. You know who's who, uh, what they might stand for. So you tell me, any of those, uh, take your fancy. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email. Tell me, who do you want as your next Prime Minister? Charlotte, what do you make to all of that? And by the way, uh, got to just be clear, not uh, all of those people have obviously put their name forward. Uh, we're in that kind of interesting strategic situation right now, aren't we, where it's taking people time to kind of come forward and say, yes, I'll put my hat in the ring. Yes, I want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. It'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. What do you make to it all? Yeah, and you have to have a certain number of, MPs eight. to back you yeah, so there'll eight. be all sorts of negotiations going on behind the scenes um, and you know if, if I back you will you give me this and so so yeah I'm, I'm surprised we haven't had more names confirmed yet but I'm sure we will have a flurry of them uh, tomorrow. Um, I mean in terms of what do, we, what do we want from our next Prime Minister you know I think um, the key for me has to be a strong strategy for how to deal with the cost of living crisis, because that is the thing that is most impacting people's lives at the moment. You know, we all know that inflation is just going up and up and up. We've got the new energy price cap that will come in in October. I mean, a speculation that could be over 3,000 uh, yeah. at the price cap. You know, whoever uh, throws their hat in the ring has to have a clear plan for how they're going to support people to get through this crisis. But beyond that, they also need a strong plan for what, what they want the economy to look like and how we're going to get growth. Because ultimately, if you want good public services, you have to be able to pay for them. Uh, and that means you need a growing economy. You know, we need to create jobs and good jobs. So I want to see them lay out their thoughts, their ideas, their proposals for how they're going to stimulate growth. Because our economy is anemic at the moment. You know, it's just... We've barely got any growth. You know, we're stuttering along. And that's a huge problem, particularly compared to other, uh, other countries around the world. And then finally, um, we know that coming out of the pandemic, there's still a huge challenge in public services. You know, you think of the NHS backlog. Last week, we were chatting about this on the show, the challenges the NHS are facing. And, you know, we've got six and a half million people right now on waiting lists. That's, that's only going to grow over the next year or so. Whoever comes in needs a plan to ensure that actually people who are paying their taxes for the health service can get a GP appointment. They're not sitting on a waiting list waiting for care that they need. You know, their kids can see a mental health professional. So I think there's a lot that we're going to be expecting. Well, it sounds to me that what uh, we might be expecting is a magic wand. <laughs> I don't know. What do you make of all that? Uh, jo, your thoughts? Well, I agree with Charlotte. Whoever comes in um, needs to pretty much get rid of the slogans and the government of, you know, let's have an idea, but let's not have any thought about how it's going, you know, to talk about health. 40 hospitals, 40 new hospitals. There's no point in building hospitals if you haven't got the staff to run them. Mm. And we've got hospitals that are falling apart around people whilst they're having operations and whilst they're recovering. Put the money into repairing those hospitals. But whoever does it needs to be calm and sensible and look at, absolutely agree, 
again with what Charlotte said, the cost of living crisis is really hitting people. We're in the summer. Um, yeah. As soon as we get to the autumn and people start to have thinking about how they're going to keep their houses warm, how they're going to, um, you know, keep their kids properly fed with wholesome hot food, that sort of thing. We are going to face real, real problems this winter. We also know that, you know, the global impact on food supplies and energy supplies, partly because of Ukraine, but also, you know, a variety of other things, that needs to be dealt with. So this needs to be a long-term, sensible, grown-up, and it might mean that we have to do some things that we don't want to do. Um, you know, it's not completely impossible that we could end up with something like a three-day week or, you know, something shutting down like we had in the 1970s um, due to the fuel crisis. Because the longer the, Euro the war in Ukraine goes on and the longer we have problems with fuel supplies and we're dependent uh, with what is happening there so much, it's going to have an impact on every single person in this yeah, country. Yeah, I mean, massively off topic, but I do find it so strange that all of these nations just keep piling weaponry and all the rest of it into uh, Ukraine, which is only going to prolong this war rather than focusing on ending it, looking at solutions, because I really don't think people are putting enough effort into linking the energy stuff with the mm. uh, length of this war. Because when we talk about energy, Martin Lewis, uh, you'll all know who he is, he's just been tweeting... He just said, look, it's worth noting that in May, when the then Chancellor announced his health pack help package, a typical bill in October was predicted to rise from £1,971 a year to £2,800 a year. Now, October is looking more likely to be £3,244 a year. How does that make you feel? I mean, I've just got goosebumps there because I know that a lot of people oh. will be really panicked, which is why I'm so cross that there's been all of this ridiculousness going on between the Tory party when it's this stuff that they should have been focusing on. Uh, nonetheless, Frank, the future, what does it look like for you? Well, well you know, uh, I hate to say this, but the cost of living crisis, and it is a crisis, is the least distinct problem facing British society. I mean, every European country has got the same problem. And although we feel it in a, in, in a kind of English or British kind of a way, and when you talk to Germans, you talk to French people or other Europeans, Americans, they are facing a very similar crisis. And obviously, we've got to tackle that. I think for us, the really big problem goes back to the fact uh, that the government has never systematically put forward a plan to bring the nation together. Because the kind of uh, challenges we face requires... Uh, greater solidarity, greater national unity, and much greater focus on, on, on in, a, in a sense, uh, transforming public life. The way that I look at it, you know, sort of the, uh, the real issue in the future is actually Brexit, because Brexit has never been done. Uh, Brexit wasn't just simply about leaving Europe. It was also about transforming our institutions. So when, for example, uh, it, was, it was suggested that the NHS has got a major crisis, it does, but one of the reasons why it's got a crisis is because we're pumping loads and loads of money into the NHS and into education. But the way that the institutions work basically means that it's got no effect. You know, we pump a lot of money in there and we have the same old It's like problem. a bucket with holes. Exactly, it's exactly. pouring it in the top and it's just trickling out the bottom and the sides. Exactly. And that's why we need to have a much greater focus on reforming our institutions so that they are more responsive to the needs of our society. And that's where I think the... Tories really failed. 
Uh, they really imagine that you can just sort of coast along, you know, make little speeches without actually realizing that the stakes after Brexit were very, very high. And unless you confronted those kinds of issues, particularly, uh, so particularly in the domain of, uh, of health and education, we're gonna have a big problem. There's one thing that hasn't been said, which I think is also really important, and people think it's actually a sideshow. Johnson and the Tories promised that they would fight the culture wars. Mm. They actually promised that they're going to deal with the way that children are being indoctrinated in school, schools. They're going to deal with all the different kind of issues that have come up day after day after day. They've done nothing. They've, but, they've, they've been worse than doing nothing because under their watch, you had a situation where in, in education, uh, which I'm involved in, also in higher education, the situation is materially worse than before the, the last election. Uh, they just basically... How so? Well, if you look at the, the curriculum uh, that's introduced, the, the kind of sex education programs mm. that have been put forward. I talk about this often on the show. Uh, you'll find that rather than it being more tempered, it, it, it acquires a, a dynamic of its own. And you know, very often you have people like Nadim Zahavi and others talk about, oh, yes, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But again, the problem that we face within education as in health is that the, our institutions resist any kind of reform. And it seems to me that if you're going to bring the people together, if you're going to confront the cost of living crisis, we do need to have the institutions that are able to deal with these kinds of matters because these institutions are not fit for purpose anymore in the 21st century. And we need to have a major rethink in relation to that. But that requires somebody to be brave. And it requires people to have the conversation that no politician, and I'm not sure that any politician of any party is prepared to have it, about what we want from the NHS, for instance. You know, the NHS, as it was founded, is not fit for purpose in 2022 because people's expectations are so mm, high. Absolutely. And although we've got fantastic technology and we've got fantastic drugs and we've got fantastic outcomes for many people who would have died um, you know, from cancer and, and other illnesses not that long ago, we cannot carry on as we are. So I think Frank's right in terms of reforming institutions, but it's also about having a grown-up conversation with the public. You can't promise everything. You know, Boris Johnson was the great promiser. The billions of pounds that were going to be poured into the NHS as a result of Brexit. Hmm, funny, national insurance has had to rise to pay for that, and I don't see those billions coming our way. And the other thing that Frank, I think, is Hang right on, that's a is... little that's a little bit unfair, isn't it? Because one of the reasons that the national insurance has risen, not the only reason, but one of them, is to try and help with a situation that was caused during the lockdowns, which weren't, which couldn't have been predicted uh, on the side of a bus. Pro he promised on the side of London buses and other buses, Michelle, that there was going to be, I can't three fifty a week, wasn't it, or three fifty a month? Three, was it? No, a week, millions a week. So if that money was coming through, which it clearly isn't, um, we could have coped a lot better. But I think the Brexit thing, whoever takes over as leader of the Conservative Party, um, needs to work out what our relationship is going to be with Do you think Europe. they need to be a Brexiteer? Not necessarily. I, 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 I do. Absolutely. I think that one of the problems that we have is that uh, it's entirely legitimate to be against Brexit. But given the fact that we've made this change, if you have somebody that doesn't wholeheartedly believe in promoting the institutional independence of Britain and doesn't wholeheartedly believe in, in some kind of na nationally focused form of solidarity and unity, what you're gonna end up is more of the same. And one of the things I worry about is that in many respects, the uh, downfall of Johnson, and he's, you know, he's obviously responsible for that, 
uh, has actually uh, emboldened the, uh, re the Remain lobby, who imagine that they can wind the film backwards. And, I don't and, think that's Well, they've already true. sabotaged so many things in the Foreign Office. I mean, the way they, for example, they sabotaged every attempt to uh, control immigration. When you talk to the civil servants, they laugh at, you know, uh, at people who believe they, in Brexit. But Thatcher's have delivered a points-based immigration system, and actually immigration is now one of the lowest... Uh, is at the, one of the lowest levels of concern in polling that it's ever been. No, so, not, if, not if you include the channel uh, migrant No, you're right, the, the migrant yeah. crossings. But overall, the issue of immigration is actually of far less concern to people now. And I think there's a real danger. I think you're absolutely right that we need to bring the country together. And that's why I think there's such a danger in, in still dividing people between Brexiteer and Remainer. And look, I voted for Brexit. You know, I, I want to see it delivered. I want to see it delivered successfully. But I also think we need to get past who, this very black and white. Who, who's only dividing? Who's losing the division? I mean, has well, it well, well, saying it, it you must be a Brexiteer. To, well, it's that, ridiculous. You have to be someone who believes that Britain is a great country and that it has huge potential, and you want to seize the opportunities and you want to make sure that we've got a great place in the world. Of course, you do. Now, you can believe that even if you did vote Remain. And I think there are a lot of people, actually, who voted Remain who, who have accepted it and who have said, most it's happened, we now need to make it as much of a success but, as we can. Yeah, but, yeah, but Brexit was not the, the polls out this week, which I'm sure you've seen, Charlotte, you know, many people who voted for Brexit are now very, very disappointed because it hasn't delivered what the promises yes, but I, were. But I think we still, again, I think we have to, you know, <laughs> politics should absolutely have values and vision and I, I, that's what I want from our next Prime Minister but it should also be pragmatic you know exactly. we had a vote we took the decision yeah. we need to move on we need to make a success of it yeah. you're absolutely right we haven't delivered everything that we should have done and, and I think that's absolutely one of the things that the that, that, you know, next leader and whoever he, he or she builds as their cabinet and ministers need to deliver on but I really do think we need to start having a conversation about what we want rather than looking back and saying, well, you voted that way or you voted no, no, that no, way. No, 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 no. The point about Brexit isn't what happened in the past. Well, it it's is about, if you're saying that the, the next the prime minister well, has got to be Yeah, well, what I, what I mean by that, it's got to be somebody who at that time understood the importance. No, it can be of, somebody of, who's taking Charlotte's well, view that is pragmatic. Well, I can tell well, you, Frank, the viewers are with you yeah. because the viewers are coming in thick and fast. And even before you raise this point... Mainbox was full of people saying there must be a Brexiteer, there must be a Brexiteer, there must be a Brexiteer. And one of the things in all this is the kind of democratic element of this, because ultimately the Tories got in. It was a very unusual election and it was pretty much essentially a one issue election. It was fought on Brexit. The people haven't had, they haven't been consulted in the change of leader, as is the right process, nor would they be. But notwithstanding that, there's a huge resentment along a lot of people. You said Boris Johnson was his own downfall and all the rest of it. There's a lot of people that think, actually, the downfall of Boris, of course, he's had a part to play in it. But things like the media have played a huge uh, role in it. A lot of the Remainers have played a huge role in it. People like Domin Dominic Cummings has played a huge role in it. So it's not all been down, I don't think, too. Um, to, uh, I'm just looking at Gareth, I'm laughing, Gareth, because I'm just looking at an email, it's caught my eye because it's in capital letters, it always caught, catches my eye. Gareth saying, if Jeremy Hunt becomes Prime Minister, I'm going to burn my house down and live in a cave in Tenerife. 
I got so many questions about that. <laughs> so many questions. Does he not, well, but did, does he yeah. not know how to turn the caps off? You see, no. in my view, that's the same as in the old days, you had people writing in green felt pen on lined paper. Yeah, but he, he's obviously feeling very strongly about yeah, it. Yeah. Really, and and, and the to... trouble is, is that people have become so demoralized. And you have to remember that the Brexit vote, and particularly the election, wasn't just about Brexit. It, it was a major political revolution where Labour Party was exposed that they no longer had the support of their well, working Labour class voters. Ger Jeremy it was Corbyn. very anti-Corbyn. There were two issues. It, Brexit. It, it was a very, it was but it was an Brexit. unprecedented election. It was getting a lot Brexit of promise. done. That was the only yeah. policy. But Let's it, end on that note then, because I've got to go to a break. <laughs> there you go. Get Brexit done, says Joe. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co. Me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, Charlotte Pickles, who's the uh, director of the Reform Think Tank. Why do I... Every time I say your name, it feels like something else. Why? It's a Rugrats character. Well, I'm really pleased that you said... Well, I'm really pleased that you said that, because when I was sitting there and it was tripping up my tongue, I'm thinking... I was thinking about that, but I, I didn't want to say it out loud in case I was Are you related to Eric Pickles? I'm not, which is also the other thing I get asked, and I'm not sure whether to be happy about that or unhappy about I think that. I'd rather be a rug rat than related to Eric Pickles, personally. He's actually a very nice man. Well, <laughs> but I'm I not can related. confirm, if you are listening, not watching, she's not uh, a rug rat. She's here <laughs> in real life, and she's a, a woman, not if we're allowed to call her that these days, not a rug rat. Uh, also, we've got the author and academic, Frank Ferreira. When you were talking, I had lots of people going, who is that man? He's speaking a lot of sense. Well, there you go. I've just told you who he is now. Uh, Frank Ferredi, the author and academic and also political commentator, Joe Phillips. We've all been nattering away during the break about who uh, candidates are going forward. I was just saying lots of the um, suggestions. We were talking about Penny Mordaunt, but we're just saying that actually, will the whole kind of what is a woman uh, thing play any kind of part in the next election, whether it's a general election or whether it's kind of this next leadership uh, campaign, I personally think it will. What do you reckon? Um, also, someone has been in touch saying this whole election, the last one, 2019, was all about Boris. And we had this conversation last night, didn't we, if you were watching, because we don't have a presidential system in this country. You do vote for your local MPs. That's a technicality. Nonetheless, the sentiment, the overriding sentiment from a lot of people was that they did vote for Boris. And I know uh, that some of you today are still... Uh, quite angry, actually, about all the goings-on in the last few days. Uh, let's move on, shall we, and talk about you lot all being watched, all of us. Uh, they're everywhere, aren't they, the CCTV cameras? We use um, facial recognition, don't we? Often I'm just pointing to my telephone because I can't remember the last time I put a password in. I just put my face on. You have it in supermarkets now, don't you? And, you know, there's no laws governing the use of live facial recognition technology in public spaces. Organisations, for example, like the police are using this technology to identify people in crowds. Um, I sit there and say, well, good. If there's a troublemaker in a crowd, I want them spotted and I want them out. Um, I have no problem with it, quite frankly, but many people completely disagree with me, think it's invasive, inaccurate, and quite frankly, wrong. Frank Freddy, where are you on it? I'm ambivalent because I recognise that um, facial recognition has got an important role to play in, in crime prevention. But then I also worry about China, for example, where facial recognition is used very systematically as a form of social control. Mm. And uh, I really worry when you know, basically you, you, your privacy uh, becomes compromised by the fact that somebody is watching you all the time. 
I think there's also another problem, which is probably in many ways an even bigger problem, which is that in many uh, uh, jurisdictions, facial recognition technology is being outsourced to private companies. Mm. And when private companies have such a, an incredible amount of influence and power over what you're doing, uh, then the potential for its abuse is quite, you know, it's quite uh, considerable. So I would suggest at the very least, we've got to get private companies out of there. It's not, not their role to, to kind of watch ours and play that kind of uh, sort of regulatory role. But more importantly, I'm, on balance, you know, despite the, its effectiveness, I do think that we should uh, really scale this down. Because although people will say we're not China, we're a democratic society, once you begin to use this, there's always a temptation to use it more and more and more. Um, and you know, one day we may well wake up and realize that we're now living in Shanghai rather than in London. Mm. Mm. What do you make to that? A few of you, by the way, are mentioning China, picking up on that exact same point in the inbox that you mentioned, uh, worried that we're heading towards a kind of big brother state, social credit systems. Have you seen a lot of what they do in China? Pretty much so much of your life is all then fed into a centralised database that really does impact basic aspects of your life going forward. Where do you stand on it, Joe? Well, I, I, I think it's very worrying. I mean, I think most of us um, can remember debates about CCTV, but we all know and recognise that actually they are incredibly useful and have brought people to justice and do, in some cases, make people feel safer. This is going further. This is about analysing not just people's face and their facial recognition. It's about the way they walk. It's about the way they move. It's about their eyes. Now, you know, you can choose to use it on your phone. Some of us use it on passports, RS recognition. Mm. There are many things. But we don't know who's using it. I mean, you can say, OK, it's the police. Well, we know there are questions about the trustworthiness of the police, as we just heard in the news report about the new Met Commissioner, who's going to have to deal with all of that. As Frank says, private companies. Um, there are areas, you know, around the country. King's Cross in London, for instance, 67 acres, uh, 67 um, square acres, uh, uh, which is a sort of public-private partnership all around the St Pancras King's Cross area, where facial recognition is used. Who keeps that? Who sells it? Who uses it? What else are they going to use it for? And I think it's it's very worrying, and it's not just us in the UK. I mean, this has come from a report by Matthew Ryder, QC, who was Deputy Mayor of London and a very um, well-respected barrister. But um, in America, they've called for a moratorium on this. Um, in some uh, states, they've actually stopped it completely until there are laws in place. And I think, as is so often the case, technology moves at a pace far faster than legislation can yeah, keep up with it. So maybe the thing to do is to say, all right, we're not going to do this. Um, until we've got some laws and some safeguards because it's too dangerous. See, there's a lot of people that are emailing in with the sentiment that I first mentioned, um, which is, if you've not done anything wrong, then why do you care if someone's scanning your face? Until and you're I, wrongly accused. Yeah, and then I'm just kind of... I just wanted to fact-check myself before I was saying what I was thinking, but I was sure I could recall something. I've just checked and I'm right. Uh, Google is facing uh, basically a lawsuit in this country for allegedly using confidential medical records belonging to 1.6 million of us. Uh, this was all about um, DeepMind, Google's kind of artificial intelligence branch, taking NHS records, so I guess our records, 
and using him in ways that they really ought not to have been. So it'll be interesting to see the outcome of that. So it's one thing, as I have that view, saying if I'm in a crowd or if there's a wrong one in the crowd, I want him spotted and out the door. So I've got no problem being scanned if it helps the, um, you know, get them out, the wrong, the troublemakers. But then when you kind of do sit and press pause and you think about the opportunity to abuse your, you, actually, I was going to say data, but I don't even want to say data, it's you. Because the, all this future of artificial intelligence, and I'm a lover of technology and I think it's right, you can essentially get to the point, Charlotte, where we could take you, we scanned your face, yep. we followed you around, we could create a replica, another Charlotte Pickles. Yeah, another rug rat, right? Uh, yeah, another yeah. rug rat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, you know, when you start to take it to that extreme, the yeah. opportunities there, both good opportunities and, and bad ones, are rife, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think um, there are lots of different issues in this. Um, the deep mind question is a, is a data sharing question. Uh, and I definitely think we need to have very clear rules around um, who owns the data. And quite frankly, if it's your data, you should own it. it you know, that's, you, that's part of you, as you're describing. Um, and I don't think, you know, a private company or a public uh, sector organisation should be able to share data about you with other organisations if you're not aware of that happening. Um, and actually, there's lots of examples where you want more data sharing, for example, in, in government and public services, because who isn't fed up with giving their information 25 times to different organisations? But I think when it's broader than that, absolutely, you need to look at it. I think on the facial recognition question, Joe's absolutely right that, you know, the technology, technology is advancing so quickly and there are so many new developments in it that um, we just, we can't keep up. And I think that's where actually... Parliament and our elected officials, you know, we live in a democracy, that democratic process, those people we elect should be much better on these things and should be debating these on a much more regular basis so that actually they're clear about the parameters within which you can apply certain technologies, the rules within which you can use it. But uh, I'm with you, Michelle, I think on the policing question, and of course, there are questions about it being used appropriately, but that's the same as any other surveillance data, you know, phone, being able to track someone's phone, you know, there are lots of rules around that. But I think it is, to finish my point, I think it is very important that actually when there is the opportunity to use facial recognition, for example, um, if there is someone who's committed a serious crime and what's the difference between saying well we're going to put you know we're going to flood the streets with police to try and find them or we're actually going to be efficient and use the technology we have to try and pick them up so they don't commit another crime or if we've somehow managed to lose track of a potential terrorist actually using uh, facial recognition is a really beneficial thing and we do need to use it in ways that can keep the public safe and but I'm absolutely a, clear there, that's there's a, a more fundamental uh, philosophical question make it a short philosophical <laughs> question all right which of those things go together which is, what, which is when, <laughs> which was when you say if you're innocent you've got nothing to worry about well the same argument is used in stop and search the same argument is used very often by the, by not just the police by other institutions as a way of gaining more control over our lives. And I think the balance has got to be, you know, our freedom uh, has got to be defended, even at the risk that somehow, now and again, criminals or the terrorists... Which is why you have rules and parameters. Yeah, but you, but it's, this a, it's a balance. Stop and search is very different to something like facial recognition, where you have an image of the person... No, no but the, the, the principle is the same. If you're, you know, people say, well, if you're innocent, why worry about yeah. this? But, but it's, you know, the whole thing about stop and search was it was on, on the reasonable... A belief that this person was up to no good, whatever it was. Now, anybody could argue oh, it's the reasonable belief that, you know, three women having a conversation um, with a philosopher 
uh, are up to no good. Yeah, wrong uns, all of wrong uns. Well, that's yeah. Yeah. Get rid of reason. Yeah. No, no, no. No, I know, but the, but I think I think I'm a, I'm a more on the, you know maybe this is naive, but I'm more on the side of saying that we need I to think, police police the I schools to do their job. I think probably none of us have ever been in the position where we have been wrongly accused on the wrong of side of it. Well, there you go. Yeah. Alex uh, makes that question as well on the email. He says, "What's your definition of a wrong un, Michelle? Yeah. Uh, what about, for example, someone that refused a vaccine? Well, I absolutely would not think that anyone." Uh, that's refused a vaccine is a wrong and but I think you make a very good point because we wouldn't have thought actually uh, when you look at things like Canada people would have their bank accounts frozen yes. for supporting people yes. so I think you make a good point actually Alex these things can very quickly spiral can't they out of control Maureen says this is all perhaps part of a new world order Michelle they simply want to have control over everyone <laughs> Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. Charlotte Pickles, who's the uh, director of the Reform Think Tank and former advisor to Ian Duncan-Smith, the author and academic Frank Freddy and the political commentator Joe Phillips. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Andrew Doyle is looking after Friday Night Feast. What have you got for us, Andrew? We've got quite a lot tonight. We've got uh, Ukraine's youngest MP who's going to be reacting to the news of Boris Johnson's resignation. And in the debate, we're going to be debating the ramifications of Johnson's resignation on Brexit. We've got all the usual features, but instead of Challenge Christie's, we've got Challenge Comedians. I won't tell you exactly what it is. I want to hold something back. We're also going to be uh, rehoming a, uh, a, a shelter dog. Uh, and uh, also we're going to be celebrating World Kebab Day. So if you're hungry, you should join us, ready? Oh, yes. Now you've got me hungry. Andrew, why did you have to bring in kebabs? Sorry about eh? that. <laughs> oh, lovely. I want to I want to leave now and go get one. Why didn't do. he bring in kebabs, actually? Yes. Yeah. That would have been yes. Uh, Andrew, it sounds very good. By the way, you look very smart. Very oh, it's because I'm wearing a tie. Yeah. And I don't normally. Yeah, very high standards there. I like yeah. it. Uh, right, we'll see you at seven o'clock. Now, uh, that leads me nicely. Look, Andrew there is all dressed very nicely. Uh, uniforms, where do you stand on them? Uh, Wimbledon, of course, has very strict... Did you see what I did there, everyone? Did you like it? Nice little segue. Uh, Wimbledon, of course, has very strict rules, doesn't it, when it comes to the colour, particularly, uh, that competitors can wear. All white, in case you're wondering. Well, that's fine if you're a man. Uh, but what about now it's being flagged if you're a woman and it's your time of the month? Should you be made to wear white shorts? There's going to be a protest at the weekend, Joe. People are saying the answer to that question is no. Where yeah. do you stand on it? Well, quite right too. And I think it's absolutely brilliant that we're having this conversation at quarter to seven on a Friday evening because it's a conversation that needs to be had. And for many, many years, it's been under the carpet, you know, in toilets. Women haven't and girls haven't been able and felt comfortable talking about it. And it's absolutely true. There is nothing to stop... Wimbledon allowing their other colours, green and purple, which interestingly are the colours of the suffragettes, so it would be very appropriate. You could wear green shorts under your clothes. The idea that somebody's got to go on, and any man who's listening who thinks, get over yourselves, don't play sport, can I just say, if you have never, ever experienced the crushing feeling of embarrassment or discomfort that you might have bleeding leakage that shows on your clothes... Uh, never mind going out and playing sport for several hours with limited toilet breaks um, and the world's cameras and a, a whole audience in front of you. You really have no idea how awful this is. And it's high time we actually recognise the fact that, yes, 
get over it. Women have periods. It happens every month. It makes you feel pretty rubbish a lot of the time. But actually, let's make wearing clothes more comfortable, particularly for playing sport. Well, um, Michael, Stephen, Mel, have we got any women? Alan, Bill, she's talking to you. All you men that are basically saying, uh, get on with it. Uh, women have had periods forever. Uh, some people saying, just take the pill then. Manage your cycle if you're so into your sports. Well, is that well, a medical well, person? Do any of these people have daughters? Well, speaking, it might be worth speaking of for the men. Oh, hey, well, yes. Right. Hang on, yeah. Hang yes. on. Just, on correct, of, just correct of the, the thing about the pill, because that is absolutely ignorant of the first order. Just wait a minute, I'm going to give you his name so you can tell him. Well, <laughs> I hope he's listening because that is beyond ignorant and stupid. The idea that... Stephen, that's you. She's talking to you. I, I, Stops I, I, you having periods? I, I think is it, that what he's saying? I, I think people are entitled to make these kinds of comments. Uh, I, 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 I take <laughs> men's views like that. Go on, You don't have to agree with species. them, but yeah, people make silly comments all the time. We don't have to be so worthy as to get on our high horses. The point is, Men also have occasionally leakage issues. I don't want to discuss, discuss it now because it leakage. takes us. Yes, leakage. You know, sort of talk to men about some of the problems that they have. But the, the issue, I think, is very clear. Oh, my man's racing now. <laughs> I think there's a very simple issue there, which is that you know, we, we should make sporting uh, uh, about the sport. And we should do whatever we can to assist people to be as comfortable as possible. And therefore, exactly. if people feel that uh, uh, this is something that, they, that will help them to be, feel more relaxed, not worry about the, the, the particular period that they're experiencing at that time, I'm all for it. Uh, but I, I, I do think that when we're discussing these things, we should, uh, we should in general uh, understand that there are a number of other areas uh, of sporting where these kinds of changes could be made quite you know, sort of productively. Um, and I, I just think it's quite a good idea. And the, Wimbledon will still be Wimbledon if everybody wears green shorts. Mm. Charlotte? I mean, I, so I do, I love the Wimbledon whites, but I'm totally with Joe that, you know, it, when you watch the female players at Wimbledon, um, most of them will actually be in a skirt or a dress or something, and then they have shorts underneath. So why can't you have the white as exactly. the dress or the skirt, and then you wear, as Joe said, the, the green and purple shorts or, or whatever under, underneath. And that seems perfectly reasonable. But I, I do just very briefly want to pick Frank up on a couple of things that you said there, because I think the idea of claiming that Joe is in some way on a high horse for pointing out that actually women still have periods when they're on the pill, uh, and the fact that men, you phrased it, have occasional leakage, women have periods every month. Um, you know, this is something that women have to deal with the whole time. And as Joe said, it's actually not just the worry about wearing white shorts. And I know the Lionesses, who are obviously playing at the moment, and we're all uh, uh, cheering them on, um, have raised the same thing about white shorts. Um, I'm so sorry. I just laughed out loud. I, I'm not <laughs> laughing at what you're saying. I'm laughing at Bernard who just emailed in. Sorry, Bernard. I don't mean to laugh at you, but it did make me laugh out loud, as you probably heard. I can relate to what you're all saying because when I was 18, I had boils on my backside and they burst while I was 10-pin bowling and I had light trousers on, never forgotten it. It wasn't a good look. I don't mean to be rude, but that did just make me laugh. That's what I was laughing at. It wasn't yeah, what yeah, you Yeah, but that's a common were. experience for men as well, but that's not the issue anyway. But the point is, is that it is possible to dis discuss this thing in a grown-up kind of a way. Yeah. Without getting on our high horse. And when I said well, I people getting But no one is getting on a high horse. I think that's what we're taking slightly umbrage with, the idea that someone's getting on a high horse. You are, because I mean, basically you're putting this guy down 
because he said what he says about the pill. So he, he's, because it's ignorant. Well, well, you, well, so what? I mean, he's not the only person that's ignorant. And, and well, I'm you, correcting him. If well, you think that's well, putting somebody on no, a high I, horse... I think you, you assume you've got moral authority to dis decide I what is right have... and what is wrong. Well, I don't no, think no, so. No, I think there's a... I, there's I, actually, there's, this isn't like a question of truth. That's a fact. Joe is, Joe is giving it's a fact it's, that it's, it's a if fact. you're on the pill, you take three weeks yeah. out of a four-week cycle and in your fourth week you have a period. I'm talking about the... Which is a public service to tell people that that's the Yeah, but if you're on your high horse... Defend himself. Yeah, the, the point is that it, uh, what I'm really getting at is that you, you know, you're not a, a school teacher talking to a bunch of children, which is which is the tone, well, that's, that which is the, the tone you adopted. I, well, frankly, well, well, that, that, well, let me just finish, you know, and please let other people make that statement. Right. So, well, I can tell you, I've always been making statements. My viewers, lots of you. I've got to say, yes, I was just Hurrah. about to say to you, there's a lot of women. Carol says. Uh, Wimbledon has always been white. Keep it as it is. Why do we want to change it? There are ways around periods, for goodness sake. Protesters need to keep their noses out. That's uh, a woman. Teresa says most female athletes have managed for years by taking a pill to delay your period when doing a race. It's nothing new. Can I just, um, on, on that point, Michelle, can, if it's, if you just, need to do the quickest response ever. Very quick. So, for example, if we have a strong view that you shouldn't be forced to take a vaccine, why should you be forced to take your exactly. pill to prevent a period? Right. Because you're forcing someone to take something in their body, you right? There you, you go. You can, exactly. all, you can all exactly. ponder that question. This one has come from a woman. Interesting topic, she says in capital letters, but not while I'm having my tea. That says Susie, right? Enjoy your tea, you lot. I hope it's a kebab. Uh, thanks to the panel for your company. Thank you at home. Have a wonderful uh, weekend. Stay safe in the sunshine. Got to give a warning like that these days, haven't you? I'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>